This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I speak with Dr. Jose Luis Stevens. Jose is an international lecturer, teacher, consultant, and trainer, a psychologist, licensed clinical social worker, and author of 18 books and ebooks, as well as numerous articles. He's also on the board of the Society of Shamanic Practitioners and is the co-founder of the Power Path School of Shamanism and the Center for Shamanic Education and Exchange. He has a doctorate in integral counseling from the California Institute of Integral Studies and has written a new book with Sounds True called Awaken the Inner Shaman, a guide to the power path of the heart. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Jose and I spoke about how to align with the inner shaman through surrender, and how to raise our frequency in such a way that we invite the inner shaman into our life. We also talked about shamanic ways of seeing, talking to the body, and actualizing our full potential. And finally, we talked about questions of trust and faith, both in the inner shaman and in the unfolding of world events. Here's my conversation with Dr. Jose Luis Stevens. Jose, to begin with, you work with a term in your work, the inner shaman. What do you mean by the inner shaman? Well, the inner shaman is the wise one within each one of us. It's the one that's, um, shamanically speaking, it's the one that's plugged into spirit. Uh, Some people call it other names, you know, people call it soul or essence or core self. Uh, I like to call it the inner shaman because that has um, such a historical meaning. Now, interestingly, in your work, and this, this I found quite surprising, really. You talk about how there's a very specific part of the human body through which we can best access the inner shaman. And you describe this sinoatrial node, the upper right quadrant of the heart. So talk a little bit about that. I've never heard anyone offer a geographic location for (laughs) through which it's best to access this wise self or inner shaman. Well, first of all, I, I don't want to say that our access is restricted to that, that little node. Um, we, there's many ways that we can access the inner shaman, but that if we, if we want a physical place to, to really sort of zero in on and focus, that, that's, the most, that's the most accurate place. And the sinoatrial node is a, is a little uh, portal. Now, shamans like to talk about portals. They say there's a portal is an opening or a passageway, like a wormhole or um, something like that, uh, to the spirit world, to the dimensions beyond the physical one that we're experiencing all the time. And uh, the heart is a portal itself. It's, it's connected to um, the spirit world. And the sinoatrial node is a little portal that um, actually has a physical function when we're in um, uh, when we're a fetus uh, it, it actually produces that a little electric spark uh, that keeps the heart beating and uh, uh, so it's literally the you could say it's uh, um, cent- central to our our life our our, our consciousness and awareness and as we grow older that that uh, little spark 
tends to spread around the heart. That's what I've been told by medical people anyway, that um, that it begins to generalize around the heart. But when we're an embryo uh, and, and a fetus, it's it's that one tiny little place where um, our life is kept going, keeps the heart beating. Now, if in this moment I wanted to identify in the body the sinoatrial node, if it's going to help me access the inner shaman, I'm, I'm all for it. So how would I identify this place right now in my body? Well, you know, the, the heart is, is slightly on the left side of our chest. But so if we go to the upper right quadrant of the heart, where the sinoatrial node is, that, that places it just about behind our sternum. You know, just uh, uh, right in the center, almost there. And, and of course, that's what we think of when we point to ourselves and we, you know, we're pointing to our, our hearts. That, that's literally what we're pointing to, is that, is that little node there, that little portal. And, of course, uh, size does, is irrelevant. Size doesn't matter to spirit. I mean, you know, you, you can fit uh, an enormous amount of, uh, well, it's like fiber optics, you know. You can fit an enormous amount of information into one tiny, tiny little fiber optic uh, filament. And so, uh, you know, you don't have to have a big open doorway. All you have to do is have a little spot there. So if you just point to your sternum, you're pretty much pointing at it. Okay, so you mentioned that this is a portal, if you will, to the quote-unquote spirit world. What did you mean by that? Well, shamans talk about the spirit world. They say that the spirit world is that that is behind uh, the whole physical universe. It's, it's uh, the, the place where all power comes from, all knowledge, all all information, everything exists there in archetypal form. And so without the spirit world, there could be no physical world. Well, that sounds an awful lot like what physicists describe as the quantum field, which is their description of what underlies the the physical universe and uh, where all matter comes from. It's all speculation. Um, But that's their current thinking, that there's a, a quantum field that um, where the whole physical u- universe comes from. And so when you really look at both, um, both descriptions, they, they, they sound a lot alike. Okay, but to make this real, in a sense, in people's experience, help me understand how, through this portal, I could have an experience of contacting, whether you want to call it the spirit world or the quantum field? Well, by definition, a human being will will never be able to experience the quantum field or the spirit world in a physical way because the quantum field and the spirit world are are not really physical. They're, um, uh, well, I don't you know, this is where words begin to fail, but call them an energetic field, if you will, or a, a, a source of information. The Gre- ancient Greeks used to call it the logos, okay? So you can't really uh, very well go and, and touch it, you know? Um, but we, we, the closest thing that we could, the closest way we could describe it is in the dream state. When we go to sleep at night and we have dreams, um, we can experience uh, aspects of it or get a flavor of it, that ability to go anywhere at the, at the, in the blink of an eye to change scenes, to morph aspects of the dream. Um, those are all qualities of the spirit world, all qualities of the quantum field, because it's not fixed. It's totally fluid. So I would say that if you recall a dream that you had, that you're, that's about as close as you're going to get to really being able to say, yeah, I get a flavor of it. I get a sense of what it's like. Okay, Jose, but I think part of what I'm curious about, and it may mean you taking us through a short process of some kind, but how do I work with this portal behind the sternum? How do I do that in an effective way? 
One good way is to imagine or visualize that there are three little filaments. Think of them as like fiber optics, you know, these three little filaments that come through that portal. And each one is a different color. And each one governs a different aspect of life. And so you could call them uh, truth or the intelligence of the universe, uh, love or what's also known as magnetism, and energy or power. So the, the intelligence of the universe is what gives us our intelligence, our sense of uh, being able to think and know things. And love is the thing that causes uh, attraction, connection with all things, with our loved ones, with the world itself, with nature, with, spirit, with God or spirit. And it takes a certain amount of energy to, mo to mobilize yourself, to, to take action, to follow through on decisions and all that. And that's what we could call energy or power. And without one of those things, there would be no physical universe. Those are the three building blocks or ingredients that make up this physical universe. And they come straight out of the, of the spirit world. And uh, so by focusing on the sinoatrial node uh, and then focusing on those three filaments coming through, you can pretty much get a sense of your, yourself being created as we speak because these three ingredients are being piped in at all times. And if one of them were to stop even for a split second, um, any one of us would just drop dead because those are what sustain us. Those are what what give us animation and this sense of being uh, alive. Now, I think it might be helpful for our listeners if they could understand a little bit more about your training and background in shamanism and how some of these ideas, whether it's the sinoatrial node or working with the filaments, etc., how you became first exposed to these teachings. Well, um, if the, the different traditions, uh, shamanic traditions in the different parts of the planet, and, and by the way, they're very similar with sort of cosmetic differences, um, all of them allude to these, um, these three building blocks of the universe. So, for example, the Huichol tradition, which is one of my root traditions, I, that's where I began, really, is studying. I apprenticed with a Huichol shaman for 10 years from Mexico, and there, what they consider to be the three building blocks are the deer, which uh, for them brings all knowledge to life, so that would be intelligence, and corn, which feeds the people, so that's love, and peyote, which is the energetic component. It's the, the power, the energy to feel the vitality of life. Now, that's their version. The Toltecs have their three parts. The, um, even the Christian tradition, uh, or I should say the Catholic Christian tradition, has the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, we have the, the, the Hindu trident, the three-pronged fork. We have the French fleur-de-lis. These are all references to, in some cases, lost knowledge. You know, it's no longer understood where they came from. But they all refer to the three aspects or the three-part experience of being uh, alive in this universe. And um, my own training uh, includes the study with the Weechals and the study with Shipibo people down in the uh, upper Amazon in uh, Peru. And those are my two primary uh, sources of shamanic knowledge, but then I've sort of uh, uh, supported that training with study of other traditions around the world, like the Sami people in Lapland and uh, uh, Finland and Norway, and uh, Australian Aboriginals. Um, I've done some study of uh, Inuit peoples in uh, the, the far north, and Siberian shamanism, and that sort of thing, just to, to sort of round out my understanding. My interest is mostly in cross-cultural shamanism, even though I have specific training in Huichol and Shipibo shamanism and some Native American 
uh, shamanism as well. Um, I'm, I'm interested in how all the shamanic traditions around the world, what their commonalities are. What is it that, that where they all agree, where they all come together, and they're basically saying the same thing. And this is one of those areas, this three-parted uh, core elements to the universe. Now, I'm curious to know your view on plant medicine. You talked about the Huichol people and peyote and its association with energy. And do you feel that working with some type of substance like peyote is actually necessary to discover the inner shaman or no? It's, it's not. It's absolutely not necessary. But it's remarkable how many shamanic uh, traditions uh, around the world, um, shamanic cultures, we could say, do use uh, plant substances. Uh, some, some often, like the, the Huichols, use it. Um, they use a lot of peyote in all their ceremonies. And, you know, it's a big part of their tradition. But in some other places in the world, it's used very uh, sparsely, you know, just only under very special circumstances. And um, no, it's not necessary. But I have to say that from personal experience, working mostly with the Huichols in their use of peyote and the Shipibo people who use ayahuasca, um, that it sure does help because it, uh, it can open uh, windows into awareness that can give you a pretty quick grasp of what they're talking about. You know, it, let's just say that it's a, it can be a bit of a shortcut. But not everybody, it's not appropriate for everyone, nor is it, um, nor is everyone how should I say this? I'll say it a little differently. Not everybody is cut out for that kind of experience, and it can be destabilizing. So I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. But uh, I'd be curious to know if someone was trying to evaluate, is ayahuasca or peyote, would it be helpful to me on my path? What your suggestions might be to help somebody evaluate that decision? Well, first of all, I would want to know if the person was stable in their everyday life. Um, you know, do they have trouble grounding themselves? Do they have trouble uh, keeping uh, clear focus and order in their own lives? Uh, if, if they're unstable, emotionally speaking, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, if they're fairly ungrounded in their everyday lives, I wouldn't recommend it. But if, if those things are not problems for them and they're, you know, very stable people and they're also very curious people, then I'd say, yeah, that makes sense. Why not? Now, what about some of the questions that come up of a Western person studying indigenous traditions but being outside the culture and then being outside the cultural framework, engaging in plant medicines that live on a different piece of land that come from the earth of a different place? And, you know, can we really extract these teachings outside of their physical geography and culture? Well, that's a valid question. And, and, and yeah, that has been argued. I've heard, I've heard discussions about that. And um, from experience, I would say that... Uh, Yes, you, you can extrapolate. You can benefit from using plant medicines, for example, uh, that are from a different location. Um, now, that doesn't turn you into a Weechal. It doesn't turn you into a Shipibo person. That, that's not possible. You have to grow up in those cultures to really be, you know, from that. You just have to, you have to, grow up within the culture to know that culture from the inside out. But that doesn't mean that you can't benefit from exposure to those people, just like we can benefit from exposure to people of different races or different sexual orientations or, or races or what have you. It, 
it's good to have friends that are who live their lifestyle a little differently because you you can get to know aspects of that even though you're never going to be that and it's very similar now i want to underscore some of the teachings in your book awaken the inner shaman that i found intriguing and in some ways a little outrageous and so i thought we would go there right into some of the teachings from the book and one of yeah. them is is you talk about how it's possible in contacting this inner shaman that we can learn to talk to our genes, that we can actually talk to our DNA. So I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit. How could we possibly talk to our genes, our genetic well, material? Genes, yeah. Okay, the, the genes are part of our physical makeup. And our physical makeup, of course, we human beings are occupying simian bodies. They're, they're from that uh, subspecies. And um, all according to the shamanic understanding of life, all aspects of nature, which includes animals and plants, and, and of course we're occupying animal bodies, mammal bodies. We are mammals in that respect. Um, those are all considered elementals from the shamanic perspective. That is that they, they, they are a certain class of, of uh, beings, physical beings, who take instructions from nature, who follow the dictates of nature. We all have instincts, for example, even we human beings. Our bodies are fairly instinctual. We have certain patterns beneath consciousness that tend to help us to survive, as all plants and animals do. They, they have instincts. And uh, they, they take the, those instincts come from nature herself. Uh, nature herself uh, instructs the clouds or instructs the mountain ranges or, you know, what have you, to, to do what they do. They, there's a certain intelligence to what a hummingbird does or a bee does or, you know, they're, because they're elementals. And we occupy bodies that are elementals. And elementals are designed to take instructions. The easiest way you can see that is when you're, for example, hanging out with your dog, and you give your dog an instruction to sit or to heal or whatever, the dog does it, because the dog is actually designed to, to follow instructions, and, and so are we. So your body, our bodies, are awaiting instructions. They say, what do you want me to do now? How do you want me to be? How do you want me to respond? And if we ignore that, then the body looking for instructions will take instructions from where, from where, wherever it can get it. And it, often it'll take instructions from the subconscious mind, which is not a very good idea because the subconscious mind has uh, many different patterns, and some of them are self-destructive. Our, our bodies are actually designed to be very healthy and strong, energetic, and have virtually no problems at all. So, but that's based on whether we give clear and good instructions. Now, one, for example, a very, very good instruction is uh, to say, um, okay, physical body, I want you to be, I want you to operate as you were physically meant to operate from your very earliest blueprint, from your state of earliest perfection. I want you to operate according to that. And so I want you to um, be strong and I want you to be uh, healthy and so on. Okay. So you can actually, and I've watched shamans do this, whereas they'll literally, they'll get down and they will talk to the body part that is having difficulty. And they'll be whispering to it and they'll say, uh, all the pain go away, and circulation come back in here, and so on and so forth. And the person receiving those that ministration is, um, I've seen them get instantly better. I've had it happen to me personally uh, down in the jungle in Peru, uh, where I was very sick once, um, <clears throat> had a very high fever and bad sore throat, and um, the shaman come and he sang to my body and he gave it some instructions. He told it what to do. And within five minutes, the fever had gone 
the sore throat vanished, and I was able to sit up and be perfectly fine. There was no trace of illness left within five minutes. That's how responsive the physical body is to instructions. So when we talk about the DNA, we're just talking about a more refined area of the body, but it follows instructions too. And we can instruct our DNA to bring uh, forth the kind of information that the body needs to heal or to evolve or whatever we, we want it to do. As I'm listening to you, Jose, I'm thinking of experiences I've had and stories that I know of people who have had healings like the one you described when a healer works on them and you know they come in in terrible shape and they, they walk out remarkably much better. But I'm also yeah. thinking about a listener right now who might be suffering, perhaps suffering from a disease of some kind. And yeah. they've tried to talk to their body in all kinds of ways and said, you know, heal this cancer in this way or that, or they've gone to healers who have worked on them and they're not getting better. So what would you say to that person? Well, there's, um, that's a bit complex, and there's no one answer that will cover all the territory there. Uh, if they're meant to get well, if that's, in, you know, that's the plan, then um, it could be that there's some contradictory messages, some messages coming from the subconscious that maybe have to do with guilt and punishment over, over uh, perceived guilt. And that's going to contradict what the person is telling their body. The person is telling their body, get well, heal up, and all that. But at the same time, the subconscious is telling the body, oh, no, you've got to be punished. You're, you've been bad. You deserve to be sick. And so you're, you're getting mixed messages, and that's a problem. So usually you have to go to somebody outside yourself, like, for example, a shaman, who can give the instructions from a less loaded place or a less, less confused place. So that's, that's one issue. There, there's also times when the body needs to be sick because the person is, is learning a very, very important lesson. And this is the only way they can learn that lesson and evolve. And so sometimes illness is appropriate. It's not always uh, a bad thing. It's not always inappropriate. Sometimes we learn the most challenging lessons from being sick. So in that case, the inner shaman is going to override the instructions and say, no, 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 just, you know, a little while longer. You know, this, 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 this illness is necessary. And so it'll just override it or disregard uh, attempts to interfere with it. So those are a couple of possibilities. So I guess I'm wondering, how do I understand this power that we have to talk to our bodies, to talk to our genes, but only sometimes it's effective. Well, the, the personality has to be completely aligned with the inner shaman. And sometimes it's not. In fact, the truth is, most of the time it's not. Our personalities are off on their own trip, you know, their own sort of fantasy or have their own agendas and access to grind. And to the degree that they're disconnected, there's going to be real problems getting, you know, being successful at healing and, and that sort of thing. So the first order of business is that the person has to get aligned with the inner shaman. And one of the ways to do that is, and this is daunting for especially Americans, they hate the idea of what's called surrendering, you know, they hate that idea. But the truth is that at some point, our personalities just have to kind of let go and give up and say, I'm not in charge. I thought I was in charge, but I'm not in charge. Inner shaman knows more than I do. I'm going to put this in the hands of the inner shaman. I'm going to give this problem over there. I say, you take care of me from now on. You you run this show. You heal me because I don't know how to do it myself. Once you get to that place, you're ready for things to happen. You're, that's, the, that's a major step. It's a step in humility, but it's also a step in wisdom. It's, it's a wise step. It's a step in letting go of 
um, a false sense of control. And if you look, all the major mystical traditions talk about that very thing. That's not news. That's that's uh, traditional wisdom, you could say. I'd be curious to perhaps experience an example of how you might talk to your body, talk to your genes in this sense of alignment or surrender as the base or the ground of the conversation you're having with your body? Yeah, it's a good question. And in fact, I have a ready-made Insta example. Uh, So just prior to engaging in this conversation, uh, um, uh, I sat quietly and I had a talk with the inner shaman. I said, look, uh, I'm going to be talking about shamanism for a while here and I want to want to really do a good job and and so I'm going to put this whole conversation in your hands you know you give me the words you give me the ideas you 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 govern the conversation you take the conversation where it needs to go which will be absolutely the best thing for the most people and you know that didn't take long it took about five minutes to to have a conversation with the inner shaman about that. Now, was I talking to my body? Well, of course I was because, you know, my voice is being used, my breath is being used, my gestures being... So my physical body is heavily involved. So I had to make sure that my physical body was on board and aligned with um, deeper wisdom. Otherwise, I would just go off, you know and what I thought was important, but might not be important at all. Jose, when you have a conversation with the inner shaman, are you visualizing the inner shaman in a certain kind of way or working with the center of the heart in a certain kind of way? Or how do you know you're talking to the inner shaman after all? Well, I don't always visualize because that's sometimes distracting. So the key for me is that I feel this warmth in my heart. And I feel connected. And I feel, I feel, that's the key word here. I feel, it's like I'm not thinking so much as I'm feeling. And I have like an intent. I have something that I'm intending that is really more of a feeling. It's like a, you know, a desire, you could say, or a wanting. And so when I start to feel some feeling, some emotion, I, you know, I, I've, I'm feeling more connected. It's not just a good idea, in other words. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to SoundsTrue.com backslash free gifts. That's SoundsTrue.com backslash free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. One of the points you make in the book, Awaken the Inner Shaman, is that it's actually possible to form a habit of thinking with one's heart. And I thought, well, that's a habit I could sure learn to form. (laughs) Because often I find myself, I'm thinking, and, and I don't think my heart's particularly involved. So how do we learn to think with our heart? Well, it's, uh, there's, there's little helpers, um, like, one of the things that I learned to do was um, I, I just put my hand on my heart, you know, like I, or my fingers. I, I just place them there, and that re, that focuses me. It says it's here, here. Pay attention to this, and then I drop down. Um, I kind of imagine myself dropping down from my head into my heart, and I start uh, as best I can say. I just start talking from there, and it. Here's the key. It feels good. It, you know, I just, that's that's the simplest thing I can say about it. It feels good. It, I feel connected. And when I'm just talking off the top of my head, 
it do, it's not always it doesn't necessarily feel good, you know. It's just I'm rattling on. So there's a there's a qualitative difference. And so I would tell people just just touch your heart, just put your fingers there, put your hand there. And that's a great way to begin. It forms the habit. You also talk about how for the shaman, that the most important places of seeing are both through the heart and the third eye, and that there's this yeah. possibility of seeing through both at the same time. And I thought that was interesting, too. Can you help us learn how to do that? How do we do both at the same time, see through the heart and the third eye? Well, to be truthful, that's something that takes years of training. But um, with that said... Uh, it's not so difficult to just get started. Now, I already described putting the hand on the heart to getting attention or focus there. And then uh, you can take the other hand and just take your finger and press the the area just above uh, where your eyebrows are and just above your nose, and you just press lightly, not real hard, but just press there, close your eyes, and see if you can uh, go inside about three inches, two to three inches. And, and that, that's just a good place back in there. It's a, with practice, it, it, it's a sense of feeling very comfortable. There's like a little pocket in there. It's like you're, you can kind of rest there. You can kind of hang out there. It's a great place to go in meditation because it's kind of a place of timelessness. You don't you start to lose the sense of time going by, and all of a sudden you can wonder like, well, I wonder how long I've been sitting here. You know, has it been five minutes? Has it been fifteen? And that's a good sign because that shows that you know you're you're, you're being successful. And so, you know, just with your hands, one on your heart and one there, you can you can start to get a sense of both places at the same time. And then, of course, you can see if you can visualize something. Like maybe you can recall a memory or you can uh, imagine some place that you're going to go or, um, uh, you know, you can, you can use that, that sense uh, and you're feeling your heart connected and you're feeling your, your uh, third eye um, at the same time. And, you know, this is one of those things that gets beyond words a little bit. I can only go so far in explaining it. These are kind of pointers to get started. But after that, it's just like kind of getting your own experience of it. And it's not so hard, actually. But it does take time to develop them into a refined state, you know, where it's easy to do. One of the things I point out in the book, is that uh, impatience is the enemy of the shamanic way. You know, so shamans really put a lot of emphasis on learning to be patient. So you can't really develop these abilities just in five minutes. You know, it, it takes patience. It takes practice. You've got to put in a little time every day, even if it's only two or three minutes. Two or three minutes every day adds up, and you'll see progress. Jose, there's a quote from the book that I'd love you to comment on, and here's the quote. It goes, To liberate the inner shaman is to shift from identification with concrete, limited, physical me to the context of me. Okay. That's a really, really important statement. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you singled that one out. Uh Shamans consider human beings to be more context than uh, a physical location. So we tend to identify with our body so much that we, we tend to say, well, I'm right here in my physical body. I can wiggle my toes and I can wiggle my fingers and, I, you know, this is me here. But shamans would say, nah, that's not exactly, that's a distraction, that's going to lead you away from wisdom. That actually, 
uh, each human being is the context of, of that their body is part of. The body's part of the context, but so is the room that you're sitting in. So is the conversation that you're having. So are perhaps other people who might be involved. Uh, they're, they're all part of the context. And the, and the shaman would say, well, that's all you. The, the whole thing that's happening is you. You are the experience that you're experiencing. Now, that's very hard for us Western folks to grasp. It's like, oh, wait a minute. I thought I was here back inside this body. And those folks were over there in their bodies. And that that chair across the room is over there. That's not me. Shamans would say, no, no, that's not accurate. That chair is being projected by your mind. Those people out there are being projected by your mind. Those are part of your dream. And so we are the dream. And I think uh, I recall Eckhart Tolle is a quote. He says something like, uh, uh, we're not uh, in time, we are time. And it's the same exact notion that the shamans are trying to get at, is that, you know, we're the, we're the context of the whole thing. I'm curious if you would have any tips for people in any given moment, how they would shift from that sense of identifying with me to the context. Yeah, um, it's, it's helpful to get, an, uh, get the sense of outpicturing. So everything that you see, sense, or feel is being outpictured by you. And so that's where you start. You, th- you, you, you get the sense of like, okay, I'm going to open my... It helps to close your eyes. And then to open them slowly. And as you start to see your environment, realize that it's all being projected out there. You're, it's like you're, you're, you're a projector. And that's the, the screen out there. It's all being projected out on the screen. So you, you look at the you practice looking at the world for let's say five minutes as, as, as it, it's all being projected. Now, the reason that people don't like to do that, they have an aversion to doing that, a resistance to doing that, is that once you get that notion, you then realize that you have responsibility for everything that's going on around you. In fact, if you want to extend that to the outpicturing of the whole world, that means you have responsibility for everything that's happening in the world. Now, most people don't like that idea because they don't like what some of the they don't like some of the things that are happening out there and they don't want to take responsibility for it. Well, that war over there has nothing to do with me. That's them. But if it's part of your context, if it's part of what you're outpicturing, if it's part of your dream, then it's time to shift the dream. So there's responsibility involved. Now, it's not totally, it's co-created, consensual, which brings us into another conversation. But, but, you know, to bring it back, five-minute exercises can be very, very helpful. Just to start with your local environment. Now, Jose, let me ask you a question about it. So here I am, and I'm opening my eyes slowly and saying all of this is an out-picturing. And I can see how my interpretation is completely this dream that I'm in, however it is I'm interpreting. But there is something there that would be there even if I had dropped dead. The picture on the wall would still be there even if my out-picturing wasn't happening. So how do you explain that? Well, I don't because maybe it wouldn't be. Okay, it's, you've been taught that the picture would still be there, but how do you really know? Now, it, it may exist in other... Well, I, w- I don't think I want to go that way. <laughs> so I'm just going to question the assumption that it's still there. I'm willing to question that assumption, too. <laughs> so it may not be. In the shamanic way of looking at things, um, it may not be there. And then how do you make the 
leap which you made, which for you seemed quite obvious, but for me felt a little bit like a jump to being responsible for everything in this outpicturing, in this context? Well, this gets us over to the, it's another part of the conversation, which is um, once you get the sense of the inner shaman, usually it starts with a sense of having a private inner shaman, like, well, I have my inner shaman and you have your inner shaman. But when you really start to penetrate in that, you start to realize that the inner shaman is connected to all inner shamans. There's only one vast inner shaman. There's, you know, like you've heard the phrase, maybe one heart, many rhythms. So each one of us human beings is, is one of the many rhythms. But there's only one heart. There's only one inner shaman. There's only one being experiencing this whole thing. And that's very difficult to grasp for the average person. It's threatening because it begins to sound like, oh, you mean I don't have my own individual consciousness? You mean I'm just a speck part of everything? Well, they're both true. So I like to think of it as a, way, uh, as a bicycle wheel, you know, where the hub connects all the spokes to the rim. And out on the rim, there's many, many points of reference. And so they're, you know, you, that's true. But they're all connected by the spokes to the hub. And that's true, too. So they're both true. And that's a paradox that's very difficult to to understand for most people because we always think of it in terms of either or. It's got to be this or that. But in this case, it's both and. We're both unique and individual in our expression, but we're part of something that is indivisible. There's, there's only one central being. And that's what is referenced, by the way, in the, uh, in the Catholic tradition, which I was raised in, which is there's the um, phrase, there is only one Son of God. That's actually a reference to an ancient shamanic understanding that there's only one being. But now we're getting into theology and philosophy. <laughs> I'm comfortable, Jose, right where you are. It's great. Okay. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is that in Awakening the Inner Shaman, you describe what obscures our experience of the inner shaman in our life. And you talk about it as the false personality. And I think this is an idea many people have heard from different traditions, that there's this constructed sense of self and that it emerges in our life in response to the needs in our family growing up, etc., the false personality. But you call the false personality a parasite. And I thought that was really interesting. Why do you call it a parasite? Um. Because the false personality wants you to believe that it is you. And many parasites try to do the same thing. In other words, they try to go undetected. They enter your body, they go into your intestinal tract, let's say, and they try to go undetected. So in some cases, they're very good at masquerading as uh, other bacteria or other cellular structures, and they can avoid detection by the immune system. And Well, you know that. That's that's biology, and um, parasites are, are really fascinating things because of their, their strategies, the way they can do that. So we have these individual identities that we, you know, like I'm, uh, my name is Eric, uh, or my name is Mary, and I'm, the, I'm uh, Australian, or I'm Italian, or I'm this or that, I'm a female, I'm a male, I'm wealthy, I'm poor, all these identifications, which seem to give us a storyline. And then we say, well, that's me. That's me, and that distinguishes me from everybody else out there. I'm not them. I'm me. Well, as we just talked about, fundamentally, that's false. And so, therefore, it's a false personality. It's a pretend personality. Now, 
we all have pretend personalities because we're playing a game. And when you play a game, let's say you play Monopoly, everybody picks one of those little little things to play the game with, like you're a little car, a red car, a blue, a blue little marker thing that you move around the board. So you have to pretend that you're one of these things. But nobody in their right mind would would say, yeah, that's me for for sure, you know, and because everybody realizes that I'm just pretending I'm playing a game here. But the, the we are playing a game, and the game is the game of life. The game is the game of play, of being human. And any good game, if you if you look at games, any good game has to have a way to lose. I mean, if it's going to be fun and exciting there has to be like a possibility of losing. That's why gambling is so much fun for people. That's why football or baseball or, uh, you know, any of those sports are so compelling is because you, you could fail. You could, you could not win. And in most really good games, there are opponents. There is, well, in gambling, it's the casino, you know. It's going to walk away with your money. And in football, it's the opposing team. And hockey, same thing. And so there is an opposing team that is trying to keep you from scoring, from scoring your goals, which in our case we could say is evolving, becoming enlightened, uh, realizing who we really are. And, yeah, there's a very definite, very what shamans call a worthy opponent. You know, a game is really fun when you have a worthy opponent. It, it means some, some, something that really challenges you. So... Uh, if, if you take that as the a metaphor that we're playing a game and that there's an opposing team, the opposing team is actually our own ego. And our own ego is trying to distract us, trying to get us to think we're this when we're not. And if, if you'll notice, the false personality or the ego is almost always leading us to misery. It always leads us to suffering which is, by the way, what the Buddha noticed, too, and taught that in his Eightfold Path. It was, it's true. And and just shamanic perspective is no different, that uh, suffering comes from separation, from playing the game and, and, and losing to the worthy opponent. So the, the game is trying to root out the false personality, to root out the parasite, um, to identify who we really are, and then we can do anything we want, so to speak, which is what shamans uh, are very interested in doing. That's why they can actually do miraculous things. Uh, they're, they're known for doing amazing things, beyond the supernatural type things, and that's because they're, they've, they've made enough progress that they've disidentified with the ego or the false personality, and they've begun to identify with something much, much greater, something much grander. I'd be curious, Jose, to ask you a personal question here, which is in your own work with the inner shaman, have you seen anything manifest in your life through you that you would say goes into that category of something, quote-unquote, miraculous or one wouldn't expect, given the laws of the physical universe. Uh, yeah, uh, but but nothing super dramatic like having ascended masters show up in my living room or something like, you know? It's like some people report things like that, but no, not me. You know, I'm more normal. I'm more regular every day. But I've certainly had experiences in my life where things that I thought were absolutely impossible have have happened or i've re- received some information that that saved my life or you know things that like got my attention i realized wait a minute how could this possibly have happened i you know it, this is not normal um uh, i i received a for example and i think i write about this in the book i don't remember now um i received uh information in a in a vision that um i would i i 
would die if I went skydiving. And I had already signed up for a skydiving um, event. And um, I canceled the event, and uh, the instructor that was going to take me took somebody else, and they both died. That, that's not everyday normal. That's now, But other people have those kinds of experiences, too. Coincidence? I don't think so. It's almost impossible, you know, for that to be a coincidence. It's just too too specific. And I'm giving the short version. There's many, many details of that story that make it even more miraculous. But, you know, I've had quite a few events like that in my life. And uh, so much so that, to me, there's no question whatsoever that, that there's something else running the show besides my personality. And it, it's given me the ability to trust that, which is a great um, gift, I would say. If somebody listening wants to align more with the inner shaman in their life so that the potential that they feel that is not yet actualized in them, I haven't quite yet in my life actualized this or that, but I know the potential is inside me. Maybe if I align with the inner shaman, this will flower in my life. Yeah. What would be your advice to such a person? Uh, well, I'd say, um, A, that's an excellent uh, decision. Um, it's totally possible. Uh, there are certain uh, there are certain things that would uh, accelerate that process. Now, this is getting into the topic of frequency. There are certain frequencies that one must stimulate or uh, generate that will lead to the inner shaman coming more forward, becoming more manifested. Uh, one of those things is gratitude. So the minute you start feeling gratitude, your frequency goes up by, by, by many levels. And so that creates a kind of fertilizer that frequency is fertilizer for the inner shaman. The inner shaman likes that frequency, and it says, oh, I can step forward into that. I like that. So if you're going to produce that frequency, I will be very happy to make that my home. So that's why mystics and saints and shamans cultivate gratitude as often as possible. Another frequency that's very similar to gratitude, but is very high and the same, it has the same effect, is love. Is 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 feeling genuine a sense of love toward. Uh, it could be anything at all. It could, it could actually be a love for your dog. Um, it doesn't matter what the object of your love is. The, what matters is the feeling of love. The feeling of love uh, creates the the vibration, the the frequency. So. Um, cultivating these high frequencies will accelerate the the movement of the inner shaman, and uh, of course, the first, the, the, the most important thing of all is that you have to want it, and you have to want it bad. You know, it can't be enough that you just go, oh, well, I think uh, maybe I'll just kind of, uh, you know, find out what this inner shaman thing's all about. That's not going to quite do it. It has to be something that's pretty compelling. It's 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 got to be something where you say, you know, I could be hell of a lot happier. You know, I I don't have to go through the kinds of difficulties that I go through. I'm gonna I'm gonna take an active uh, an active part in moving myself in this direction because I want it bad. You know, it's it's almost like the the choice to say there there really isn't any other choice. This is the only choice that makes sense for me. Then things are going to happen fast. And Jose, I just have one final question for you. Early on in your book, you talked about how you had studied with Mayan elders, and that at one point you were told that the sixty years 
after 2012 would be a time in our world that you referred to as a type of construction zone, that we would be reshaping our world for good, but that it would be like living right in the midst of a time of deconstruction and construction, a construction zone. And I'd be curious to know what your sense is of this next 60-year period of time. Yeah, okay. Um, Well, that brings us to somewhere right around 2072. That would be approximately 60 years from uh, 2012, which was the end of the Mayan calendar and the beginning of a new one, by the way, which didn't get talked about in the media because it wasn't uh, dramatic enough. Um, but it, it's a time of construction. It's a time of, of building. And uh, I'm not going to get into any kind of details here, but uh, this is a, a time frame, especially the next, oh, well, now we're down to you know, 19, 18 years or so in this next sequence, um, which will be primarily uh, a world coming apart, old systems, old structures, uh, having reached their natural end of their life cycle, and they'll be collapsing. They no longer will serve. Um, They don't match a new frequency that's coming onto the planet. They're too low in frequency. And people are very attached to them. Uh, All the isms like uh, capitalism, communism, socialism, you, you name it, uh, isms are pretty much a thing of the past that none of them have worked adequately, and uh, we don't know what's going to replace those, and that f- that freaks a lot of people out. They're terrified of the fact that we don't know what the world is going to be like in the future. All we can see is that these systems are are really threadbare and and failing, um, and yet this is where it takes some faith or some trust that they are forthcoming, that we're creative enough as a species, that we have enormous support and help from the spirit world, and that we're not going to fail, and that we are going to replace all the failing systems with brand new structures that work way, way better for the world, for humankind in general. And, uh, and these are actually being created and thought of as we speak. Some of these, uh, they haven't you know, been put before the public yet. They're not even known by very many people. But there are innumerable solutions to the problems that we have. And it's just a question of them rising to the public's attention and getting sufficient attention to become, you know, uh, uh, choices. And so, yeah, this next 20 years is going to be the most intense with regard to deconstruction, and then we'll come a period where there's a kind of deconstruction, but construction, so it's an overlapping. And then finally, there'll become come into play a huge renaissance where the new paradigms take hold and transform this world in a very, very rapid fashion. So that by the time 2072 rolls around, we're going to be looking at a vastly different planet, different uh, structures, different philosophies, different values, and it's going to be—it's not going to be a perfect world, and we'll still have pro- problems to solve. But it'll be a hell of a lot better than what we're looking at right now. Now, Jose, I'm going to sneak in one final question because listening to you talk about the world transformation scene, and then also hearing you talk about your own sense of trust in surrendering to life, really. I'm curious if you can comment on this quality of trust or faith that you have and what you could say about it to somebody who is perhaps much more skeptical, doubtful, or even pessimistic in general. Well, there's a big difference between skepticism and pessimism. Skepticism is healthy in the sense that it invites us to investigate, and some of the greatest discoveries have been made by skeptics. Um, pessimism is a whole other story, which is discouragement and depression and hopelessness, and you know it's not particularly helpful. It's a low frequency, so it doesn't invite the inner shaman out. And um, so, how do you cultivate trust? How do you cultivate faith? 
this is something that's been, you know, philosophers have been trying to answer this question forever. Uh, and it's very, very difficult to um, talk about. Uh, but let's just call it a result of investigation. If, if you have curiosity and, and you're willing to investigate other possibilities for being human, um, alternatives to the, the uh, straitjacket uh, uh, beliefs and ideas that cultures tend to give us, uh, then trust begins to develop. It's something that is the result of uh, a certain path forward. Now, you don't have to have complete faith to take a few steps. You know, like they say, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. It's absolutely true. You don't have any idea what you're going to encounter on those thousand miles. It's going to be a wild adventure. But you're willing to take a few steps because to not take a step forward is to stand still, which is uh, contrary to our human nature. We have curiosity. We want to move forward, even if we don't know what the hell we're doing. So trust is the byproduct. It's, it's the gift of having the courage to step forward even though you don't know what the hell you're doing. And that's, in fact, the meaning behind the tarot card that has the fool stepping off the cliff. That's every one of us. But it leads to trust. I've been speaking with Jose Luis Stevens. He's written a new book published by Sounds True called Awaken the Inner Shaman, a guide to the power path of the heart. And also has created a forthcoming audio program called Meditations for the Inner Shaman. Jose, always good to talk to a fellow fool stepping off the cliff. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for the interview. It was uh, really thought-provoking, really good to respond to your questions. I really enjoyed myself. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.